Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. It's been too long. That's my bad. It's Doug Maurice. Great show today. Let's get to it. Brent Sobleski, NFL analyst for Bleacher Report. We're going to talk about the Browns and the draft, but basically we're going to run through the entire Browns roster with the question, are these guys players who could be part of a playoff team in 2019? There's one thing to build to be more competitive in 2018. There's another thing to build to be a playoff team in 2019 and 2020 and beyond. Many times it's the same thing, not every time. And although we know the Browns are going to be better this year, they can't be worse, I'm less interested in incremental progress in 2018 and more interested in building a foundation to be a playoff team soon. That's what we talk about with Brent. You can follow him on Twitter at Brent Sobleski. Good conversation. We appreciate you guys hanging with us. Sorry it's been so long. Doug Lane Maurice, follow me on Twitter at Doug Lane Maurice. Read my stuff, read my stuff at cleveland.com. Let's get to it. Brent Sobleski on Takes by the Lake. We're happy to be joined on Takes by the Lake by Brent Sobleski, an NFL analyst for Bleacher Report. You can also find his work with the Orange and Brown Report. Uh, I've been trying to get together with Brent for a few weeks this offseason. Glad um, I could finally make it work. Brent, thank you for joining us. What an offseason for the Browns so far, right? Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me, Doug. It's always a pleasure. Um, when we look at what Cleveland has done this offseason, I think it's, it's progress. And this is what the team has been building towards for two years. Despite uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Despite using Sashi Brown as a scapegoat, this was always the plan. Albeit not 1-31 in over two years, but building a war chest for draft assets and salary cap space to really build the team into a contender or at least a team that can be competitive in 2018 into 2019. So I find it successful, even though John Dorsey's at the helm, what they've achieved has improved in multiple areas. And I think it's safe to say, Doug, when we look at it, they may not be at the Pittsburgh Steelers level, and yes, they're coming off an 0-16 campaign, but the talent is commensurate with others. What well, well, the other two teams we see in the AFC North, whether it be the Baltimore Ravens or the Cincinnati Bengals, so that's a step in the right direction. We just now need to see it come to fruition onto the field. So we want to get into some draft stuff with you, Brent, because we know you cover that so well. You do mock drafts. You've analyzed the quarterback prospects and the draft this off season. But before we get to the draft, I want to look at the off season through two lenses, and and I think they. They can be the same lens, but they aren't necessarily the same lens. One is what has been done to make this team more competitive for 2018. And the other is what has been done to build this team into a playoff contender down the road. Because I think people are generally upbeat about the offseason. They're generally upbeat about the idea that the Browns are going to at least win a game this year, but I don't know that anybody's looking at the Browns as a playoff contender in 2018. But the thing that that interests me the most, and maybe we can look to the future first, I am less interested in how competitive they are in 2018 and what Jarvis Landry and some of the other offseason moves mean for that compared to are the moves they are making building them toward being a playoff team in 2019, 2020, and down the line? 
because I think that's that's what Sashi Brown was looking at, right? When you see these offseason moves, are these players, the guys they've added this offseason, are they adding players that will be players on a playoff team in 2019, 2020, and beyond? Well, to me, that's the, the most fascinating aspect of this approach. First and foremost, when you add veterans through free agency and in the offseason, you don't have to get older necessarily. Yes, Cleveland was the youngest team in the NFL last year, but you have added legitimate pieces that can be with you two, three, four years down the road. And that's looking at a TJ Carey or an EJ Gaines or Chris Hubbard, Carlos Hyde, um, you know, multiple names, and Jarvis Landry as well, obviously, that 25 to 28 years old. You're not getting them at their peak. You're hopefully entering those peak years instead of considering signing those guys who are 30 years older or older, uh, much like the Oakland Raiders kind of have approach to this offseason. So when I, first and foremost, I find that pro- approach very interesting because they weren't necessarily in on the top free agents at some of the key positions, but they were able to go after those secondary um, younger veterans who may have not had an opportunity to have full um you know, full roles, fully developed roles within their previous organization. And now they can step in in Cleveland and, and become uh, and realize that potential. And uh, that is large to me because when it comes down to the, to your previous question, the first part of it, the two things that automatically come to mind why they're better in the short term that will help build towards the long term is, one, you have Todd Haley taking over play calling duties from Hugh Jackson. That's absolutely vital. We saw in the last two years Jackson was overwhelmed by not only having play calling duties but also trying to be the CEO of the team. It, it did not work abilities and hopefully improve based on what we've seen. Second of all, you've stabilized the quarterback position. Now, I'm not saying that Tyrod Taylor is your long-term starter by any means, but what you're looking at is an automatic improvement in the area based on what we've seen the last two seasons. Tyrod Taylor may not be the best quarterback in the NFL. He's probably not even top half of the league, but we know he can play in the league, and that's absolutely vital considering where you're sitting with the number one overall pick to bring in a young quarterback and I'm going to stress young and I know we're going to get into it here in a bit but when you look at Josh Allen or Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen um, or even Lamar Jackson who's who visited Cleveland as well 21 years old or younger in all four of those quarterbacks you need a professional at the game's most important position to know week in and week out you're not going to be at a deficiency compared to opponents and you have that entire rotation maybe he's given an extension at some point during the season or after the season that's neither here nor there at the moment what's important is he's in place and that he can be that quote-unquote bridge quarterback so that you can develop long term that quarterback the right way without throwing him into the fire like we've seen so often and what what did you Jackson say last year with with Deshaun Kaiser he wanted to throw him in the deep end of the pool and we saw how spectacularly that failed in developing that position so when I look short term it's going to feed into the long term because you're bringing in veterans who are now uh, on their second contracts at 25 to 26, 27, 28 years old, and you have better coaching uh, set up with, within the structure as well as addressing quarterback with a legitimate option. So that that cycle altogether, to me, forms a more competitive team in 2018. Maybe not a playoff team, and you're absolutely right, Doug, when you say that, but five, six wins, that's legitimately possible. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm going to be very curious if, 
there aren't as many deficiencies, right? And and, and mostly that's at quarterback. Um, but even when you see, when you think about the the receiver group they're starting the season with compared to a year ago, what they started the season worth, especially um, once Corey Coleman, when he was injured, and you're relying on guys like, obviously Kenny Britt was awful, nobody else stepped up, guys were dropping balls all over the place for Deshaun Kaiser. You're going to be so improved at quarterback, you should be so improved at receiver with Josh Gordon and Jarvis Landry and Corey Coleman, if he still has a role on this team. There's just fewer gaping holes and I and I know that's good for 2018 but the quarterback position is so interesting because they did they're doing both right there they addressed how to be better in 2018 with Tyrod Taylor but they're also addressing how can we be a playoff team in 2019-20 down the line because they're going to take a quarterback number one overall when you see other guys on this team when you see for instance the secondary when you see adding T.J. Carey and E.J. Gaines and the guys you mentioned, Demarius Randall, do you think they still need to build a lot on that secondary? Or, for instance, does this secondary now look to you like a secondary that could be the secondary of a playoff team? Or how much talent do you still think they need to add to that part of the roster? I do believe they still need a true number one cornerback. And I okay. know we, that that designation has been muddied over the years and we don't get to see the quote-unquote shutdown shut cornerbacks anymore. But when you look at the way Greg Williams' defense was built previously, you go back to the Rams days, he had Tremaine Johnson. And what Tremaine allowed them to do is be that physical cornerback, that long cornerback that was able to jam and reroute uh, receivers on a consistent basis, you don't necessarily have that guy on the roster at the moment. Do you have competent cornerbacks that can step in and start and play at a, uh, relatively well? Absolutely. You know, T.J. Carey may not have been the best cornerback ever playing for the Oakland Raiders last year, but he played more snaps than anyone else in their secondary, not named Reggie Nelson last year. So he was their top cornerback. You have um, you have Gaines, who statistically, if you go into the deep analytics of it, and I know that's a dirty word for some Browns fans, but if you go into the deep analytics, he has been a very good starting cornerback in the league. He's just had injury issues. If he can stay on the field, he can be someone that can be a nice complimentary piece. The same applies to Brian Body Calhoun because he is one of the premier nickel corners in the NFL that can also bump outside and be physical with you even though he's a shorter stature. With that said, I'm still looking to see if the team addresses the position early in the draft, and I actually expect them to do so. You know, I look at John Dorsey. He's a very big proponent of positional value. He always has been. And while we can talk about players like Saquon Barkley or Quentin Nelson or those who don't play uh, the traditional cornerstone positions found in the NFL, cornerback is one of those. And when I see that, I can see them considering one very early in the first round, if not the latest, the second round. You know, when you look at guys that have that length, that have that physicality, or just the raw speed to shut down one side of the field or as best of their capabilities, I think that's still vital to where they're looking to progress. And so when I look at it, I do believe that can be a competitive secondary, but it's still not quite finished. And that, to me, that's the entire encapsulation of the Cleveland Browns roster right now. You have far less, far fewer holes, yet you can do far more with the roster as, as, as once it's in completion. When you look at the rest of the defense, 
at linebacker with Collins and Schobert and Kirksey, and then obviously the young defensive line led by Miles Garrett. We expect Larry Ogunjobi to have a much bigger role this year. How close are those positions, do you think, to being positions that that they could have these guys be on a playoff team? How much do they need to add on the defensive line or at linebacker, or how close are they? Well, with linebacker, let's work our way from secondary to the front. With linebacker, I think you have three legitimate starters. Uh, Obviously, uh, Joe Schobert was top three in uh, total tackles this year, made his first pro ball, and he's going to continue to improve. I know there's concerns within his game, but let's not forget that he never played inside linebacker at at Wisconsin. This is a guy that grew up as an edge player, and he's still learning how to play the position, yet we could see how instinctive and physical and how many plays he actually made throughout the season. Jamie Collins, we know, is a very talented uh, defender. Arguably, from just a pure physical perspective, other than Miles Garrett, is the most talented defender on the Browns roster. Yet, we need to see the consistency. I know last year he was hampered by injuries. Let's see him healthy. Let's see how he can be utilized. And whereas Christian Kirksey is... I feel been miscast just to a slight degree because he's really good working in space. And that may sound like uh, an oxymoron to a degree because they had so many struggles in coverage last year. But more of that had to do with the defensive scheme more so than the actual ability and skill sets found within the linebacker core. You know, when you're not jamming the tight end, when you're giving free releases consistently, you're not rerouting. It's very difficult for any of those linebackers, no matter how talented they are, to keep up and cover some of these tight ends you find in the league, some of these running backs out of the backfield, you know, or even slotting them over uh, almost in a nickel position over some wide receivers. So I I would like to see a little more aggressiveness in that regard, um, just so it places the linebackers in a better position to take full advantage of their ability. Along the defensive front, to me, one of the most telling stats for the Cleveland Browns is they they created the least amount of pressure by their front four of any team in the NFL last year. Now, we saw Miles Garrett, even at 75% to 80% or whatever he was through a year, how how much of a force he can be. And I, we, I, myself, I fully expect him to develop into a difference maker. But, you're, but it's beyond him. You need more than one guy. You need an interior pass rusher. This is what Danny Shelton never gave you. Danny Shelton was a run defender. He was not explosive. He was not going to penetrate consistently. And this is one of the reasons why the team decided not to take up his fifth-year option on his rookie contract and, and trade him to the New England Patriots. Emmanuel Ogba was a very good player before his injury last year, but mostly as an edge setter and run defender. We didn't see the development we expected from him as a pass rusher. What I find fascinating is when you look at the possibilities that are, are, could be presented to Cleveland, let's, let's just throw a scenario out there. The, you're sitting at four, number four overall on Bradley Chubb sitting there. And I know, and I've talked to Browns fans myself, that they, there's no reason to take Bradley Chubb because Emmanuel Ogba and Miles Garrett is on the field. That is such an archaic way to look at the way defenses play nowadays, considering the preponderance of sub-packages found within schemes. When you watch what Greg Williams does with Emmanuel Ogba, with Miles Garrett, he slides them down the three technique, three technique or even one t- technique in a lot of those passing downs. So you add another edge rusher, another guy that's explosive. Because quite frankly, the, the idea of having Bradley Chubb, Emmanuel Ogba, 
Miles Garrett and Chris Smith that they signed a free agency mm-hmm. all on the field at the same time in a NASCAR package. That is exciting and can really address one of the biggest needs found within the entire team. So if you if they did that, if they took Chubb at four, and if they took a corner with one of their early two early second round picks, or maybe even moved packaged some things and moved up late into the first round to get a corner. This defense would be getting close then, right? That would be getting closer. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And I look at it because, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect for me because I, 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 I'm not sure I can sell myself completely on the current coaching staff lasting beyond the 2018 campaign. Yep. And you're kind of building towards what Greg Williams' vision is and when he may not be there long-term. But overall, if Dorsey approaches it by saying, we want to land the core four positions found within an NFL roster, those being quarterback, left tackle, cornerback, and an edge rusher, that would be the most logical process for me to see this team greatly improve in the shortest amount of time. You address quarterback, we expect the number one overall. Uh, with left tackle, it's a bit of a toss-up because this is a poor class overall. We're not exactly sure who's going to be available to Cleveland later in the process. Whether you can actually unseat Sean Coleman in that role, that's going to be difficult as well, simply because a lot of developmental prospects are found in this year's class. Corner, as we already stated, can be upgraded, or at least find that guy that's longer, leaner, maybe a, a Josh Jackson if he falls, or uh, excuse me, Carlton Davis, Isaiah Oliver. Those guys have that, that body types that they're looking for. I think just really addressing the pass rush, and not just edge rusher. The, the interior is lacking as well. I do believe Larry Ogunjobi is a star in the making, but he's not necessarily a, a guy that's explosive upfield penetrator. This is why I found it fascinating when Cleveland brought in Maurice Hurst uh, mm. throughout this process to potentially consider him, and maybe a trade-down situation. You know, that, He's not going to be there, that guy, at 1-4, and depending on medicals, you don't expect him to be there in the second round. So maybe if one of those teams want to come up for a quarterback, then you look at a Hurst because that's a guy that you can plug in a three technique is going to consistently work at heel depth or in the backfield. I want to ask one more question about the defense, and then we'll get to offense, and then we'll get to the quarterbacks in the draft. Would you consider Denzel Ward at number four, or do you feel like that fourth pick is best used either on Chubb or possibly in a trade-down situation if you can get a ton from a team that's trying to come up and get a quarterback. I feel like you're setting me up here. <laughs> I'll tell you what I think first, and I'll tell you what I think first, having covered Denzel okay. Ward at Ohio State. Um, Marshawn Lattimore went 11th last year, I believe, right? Um, Eli Apple went 10th um, when he was drafted. I don't think Denzel Ward is Marshawn Lattimore. Marshawn Lattimore was a breakout star, uh, as a rookie cornerback in the NFL, as a shutdown NFL corner. I just feel like he's a little bit bigger. He's a little more physical. Um, he's almost as fast as Ward. If Marshawn Lattimore was the guy, I would consider that at four. I just feel like with Ward's size, he's a little short. There are some big receivers in this league that if you're telling me you're going to draft Denzel Ward to shut down big physical receivers – I don't think that's the value at four. If you're trading down and getting extra value for that pick and then you want to take Ward at nine or something like that, that's fine. I think there's too much other value on this board. I understand some people want a corner 
and think he's the number one cornerback, I don't think that's the value for me. I just think he's a step short of that value. I'd take Chubb or trade down, but I don't want Ward at four. Well, that's completely understandable, but let me play devil's advocate just for a few minutes. Okay. You know, the, the irony is, uh, before we started recording, I told you I was working towards one of my final mock drafts for this year's draft class. And at number four, I have Denzel Ward slotted to the Cleveland Browns. Really? Now, let me, yeah, I do. But let me preface that, because it's based on situation, and also I do not project trade, because they're hard enough to rain mock drafts anyway. Sure. So why increase, you know, all the... Uh, the differences that you can create with with trade. So let me throw a scenario out to you. You're sitting at number one, you get your quarterback. Number two, the New York Giants surprise to a degree and take Bradley Chubb. Yep. Okay, so now your top defensive player on your board is gone. Number three, obviously, is going to be a quarterback for the Jets. If you do not work a trade with number four, whom is sitting there that you want to select? That's the interesting aspect, because the automatic response is Saquon Barkley, when reality is that position is still devalued, and on top of it, I'm not trying to slight Barkley, I have to believe he's a top two talent in this year's class, but this running back class is absolutely loaded, and you have to take that into into consideration, knowing that you may not be able to get a cornerback quite the caliber of Denzel Ward later in the process. Now, to your point about him not being Marshawn Lattimore, I agree to an extent, but I think if you look closely, their physical profiles are closer than most people expect. His length, even though he's 5'10", I believe his arm length is 32 inches, over 32 inches, which is very good for a cornerback. You have the vertical jump. Uh, the speed is obviously a big selling point. Uh, and yes, he's about 10 pounds lighter than Lattimore was coming into the league and not quite as physical. But what I will give Ward an edge on Lattimore, and, and part of this was due to how Ohio State used Lattimore compared to Ward. Ward has some of the best lower flex, lower body flexibility and, and ability to turn out of his back pedal that I've seen in a long time. He's just very fluid. He's a very fluid athlete. And that allows you to compensate to some degrees when you're not as physical because you can shut down passing lanes and passing windows far quicker because without taking those extra steps. So that's my counter argument. That's the way I'm looking at it. And I would think that if the right situation presents itself, he would be a possibility of four. Yeah, that's interesting. To me in that scenario, if Chubb's gone, to me, if you're John Dorsey, and I, I, I completely agree with your idea of in mock draft to project trades is kind of crazy, but I think there's <laughs> such value that that if Chubb is gone, and there's only two of the quarterbacks are off the board so far, um, I think you've got to be able to swing a deal to get people to get more value out of that pick, and and, and maybe, you know, if you can even get Denver to come up a spot or or get. There might be a way that you could get Ward even later in the round and still get more value out of that pick. If Chubb is gone, that really makes that pick interesting, doesn't it? And 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 you definitely think that's a real possibility because I think a lot of people have now sort of come to this conclusion of quarterback at one, Chubb at four is maybe like the easiest thing that could present itself for the Browns. But if Chubb is gone, that's a whole new world. Yeah, but it's the most, you're right, it's the most logical for Cleveland. You're looking at, again, two cornerstone positions, quarterback, pass rusher, bang, bang, boom. And you've now hit the head on two potential difference makers very early in the process with that quote-unquote elite-level talent. Now, 
it, it comes down to what the Giants are going to do. And really, that's the beginning of this year's draft. When you sit at the second overall pick, they haven't really tipped their hand. We believe, and it's been reported, that they're absolutely loving with Sam Darnold. Okay, well, Cleveland takes Sam Darnold number one overall. Now they're sitting there wondering, what are they going to do? Barkley and Chubb are certainly in consideration, and a trade should be very much in play at that point. But we, it's hard to decipher at this point because we haven't completely ascertained who the Cleveland Browns are going to take number one overall, let alone for the Giants who have more options or are potentially waiting for a guy at number two. So that's why I find it fascinating because there's so many variations we can look at within that top five. Because let, let's, let's throw this out there for a second. Okay, it's, say it's Darnold, Chubb, and then... I don't know, Mayfield, number three, okay? Right. So if you're one of those teams like Buffalo or Arizona or Miami or New England who are looking up to trade for a quarterback, you may not necessarily have to trade for that fourth overall pick because even though Denver wants a quarterback, now you're still in position with two available quarterbacks and maybe call them Indianapolis at number six, who we know wants to continue to trade down, and you don't have to give up as much of a premium. Yep. This is the positions and the variations you're going to find with all these scenarios leading up for the next two weeks into the NFL draft. Yeah. All right, let's run through the offense real quick, and then we'll keep teasing people with your thoughts on, on the quarterback at number one. We know they they have a chore in trying to replace Joe Thomas at left tackle, but we also know they've spent money on the offensive line. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on the offensive line. With, with oh, the big ugly himself isn't going to get to talk to about offensive line. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. Uh, all right, I'll get, give me give me a minute breakdown on on uh, a scale of 1 to 100, how good you think this offensive line will be this year for the Browns? 1 being a sieve, 100 being the best in the league. Where are they? I will go, I'll give them a grade around 75 to 80. Okay, that's pretty good. Because I think four-fifths of your line is settled, and they're good to very good, depending on which which, uh, blocker you're discussing specifically. Left tackle, obviously, is a concern, because... No one's Joe Thomas. No one's ever going to be Joe Thomas. And no one can replace Joe Thomas. We accept it. We understand it. And we need to move forward. You know, it's a Hall of Fame career. And he was amazing to watch. And we'll just leave it at that. When you look at Sean Coleman, he had his struggles at right tackle. He gave up the second amount of pressures of any offensive tackle in the NFL last year. That was on the right side. Now, you can counter that argument by saying he's more comfortable on the left side. And that's absolutely true because that's what he played at Auburn. And it's difficult for offensive linemen to switch back and forth. You know, I know a lot of fans think it's just a natural transition. It's not. Um, you get you have certain muscle memory that you can uh, that that it's more natural overall on one side compared to the other. So I'm curious to see how he transitions. Now I will throw out another scenario, and, and I know I'm, I'm you're loving these hyperbolic or excuse me these uh, all these variations I keep using. Well, why do we not consider Joel Batonio for left tackle? Mm, I don't yep. have a reason. I can't come up with one. He played left tackle in in, in uh, at Nevada. He has arms over 33 inches long. He's a spectacular athlete if you go back to his combine testing. And furthermore, if you want to dress offensive line by bumping him out the left tackle, it's far better along the interior than it is trying to find an offensive tackle prospect. Yeah, and he's making a ton of money. Um, Exactly. Yeah. No, that would be interesting. I'll be curious to see how creative they get. Um, And obviously, if it doesn't go well at the start, they'll probably start looking for answers. But they should have more than one option there. 
Skill players overall. When we think, and Corey Coleman is such a wild card, I'm just glad that Corey Coleman is still on this roster at this point. I, I, I understand that it's the inclination of a lot of GMs when you come in to just do a clean sweep and get rid of everybody. But man, like the guy's been so injured. I, to just give up on him for nothing, you're not going to get anything in a trade. Um, I just would think would I think would be a waste. Give the guy a shot to be healthy and to play with a real quarterback and not be relied on to be the number one receiver. And let's see what happens. I still think there's potential there. But when we think about Gordon, Coleman, Landry, Njoku, Duke Johnson, Carlos Hyde, again, how close to playoff level are we talking with those skill position players? Or do they still need a really top, top running back? I understand the reluctance of many people to take Barkley at four, but would you be thinking running back early second round, even with Hyde here, or or is that enough with what they have right now? Well, I would consider running back relatively early, not first round, second to third, fine. You know, I mean, let's not forget that it was John Dorsey who found Kareem out in the third round last year, and he would have potentially been the offensive rookie of the year if he was healthy the entire season, and or if Alvin Kamara kind of faltered at one point. But when we look at it, that's more for adding variance within your your offensive scheme. You know, uh, first and foremost, let me say this. I'm a, a true Duke Johnson believer. Having seen him uh, since Miami, his ability to create space, his ability to not only be a dynamic runner, but a receiver, and all the things he can do within an offense, I truly believe he should be used as a lead back. Um, and while I'm not, I'm not advocating a workhorse back, you know, just 15 to 20 touches every single game because of how much he can create. But I think he is a modern NFL running back. And then if he doesn't sign with Cleveland after this year, he's going to find a monster market (laughs) in free agency uh, beyond Cleveland. So that's my first contention. Second of all, uh, to your point about Corey Coleman, 23 years old, that should say enough to continue to um, try to develop him uh, considering you have three or two to three more years uh, on his rookie contract. I know a lot of people want to dump on him because of the drop at the end of the Steelers game. That's unfair to him. That's unfair to everything that happened last year for the Cleveland Browns. And uh, we look for scapegoats, and he does not deserving of it. Is he deserving of ridicule? Absolutely. You know, when you look at it, you want to see a guy who has shown promise. And he's flashed once or twice, but we've never seen the same guy that left Baylor. You've never seen that explosive target that absolutely decimated FBS for his, uh, during his final season on campus, the Blitnikoff winner. But now, instead of entering the season as your number one target, he's now at best your number three target. Yeah. Or, or four, depending on how you feel about Njoku and how you envision him within the offense. So that's important. Now, I think the most important aspect that could really push this team as an offense to one of the better in the league, as, as in the top half of the league, is how Josh Gordon is committed to playing football. Yeah. Josh Gordon is a top three wide receiver in the NFL when he's fully committed. We understand he's a physical freak. I mean, he's on par with Julio Jones, A.J. Green, all those guys. And I, if he can, is is fully invested, if he is able to even show some of the potential we saw earlier in his career, this offense can take off to an unbelievable level. Because we know what to expect with Jarvis Landry. We understand it. 400 catches in four years is the most in NFL history. He's reliable. He's a good route runner. He can create after catch. He can play slot. He can play outside. That's why he got the big contract. Also, he got the big contract because 
of those uncertainties with Corey Coleman and Josh Gordon. If everything comes together correctly, this could be a, a, a dynamic offense as long as Tyrod Taylor can be the point guard and distribute the football on a consistent basis. And that's been a little bit of a bugaboo with, found within his career. Then again, if you look at Buffalo's wide receivers, <laughs> to say they were poor last year is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> And when he, earlier in his tenure in Buffalo, when you had Sammy Watkins, when you had Robert Woods, he was a better quarterback overall. So I'm excited to see what they can do with all that talent. It might take time for it to gel, but it's there to be far better than what we've seen at any point in the last few years. And I'm very curious to see if what competent quarterback play will do for Josh Gordon. Because I understand, I mean, it's hard to be fully invested when you know your team stinks and you know your quarterback's not very good. And the fact that Tyrod Taylor is a competent, at the very least, is a competent veteran quarterback and that you have a little more talent surrounding you, I just feel like might be something to get a guy to to keep himself um, interested uh, a little more from week to week. All right, let's get to the quarterback situation. I am at trying to be at my most open-minded as we get down closer to the draft here. I've said all offseason I'm open-minded on Darnold, Rosen, and Mayfield. I'm not going to back myself only into to one guy's corner and be upset if they take somebody else. I've said I'm scared of Josh Allen the entire offseason. However, I am trying to possibly convince myself that there may be a world where no matter what the Browns do at quarterback, they're going to get it right. Because I know we're at the nitpicking stage with all these quarterbacks. Josh Rosen is is too smart and too arrogant, and Sam Darnold fumbles too much, and Baker Mayfield's too short, and Josh Allen is too inaccurate. But we know there are teams that like all these guys. We know they're all going to be drafted as franchise quarterbacks, and so they all do have pluses. Could that possibly be right? Address first, Brent, my most open-minded idea that no matter who the Browns take at quarterback in this draft, there is a very strong chance that they get it right because all four of them will work out in the NFL. Well, I will go as far as saying I agree that there are three right choices okay. and one, <laughs> one potentially wrong choice, very wrong choice. Now, I'm stating that as the guy who a year and a half ago wrote that Josh Allen is the quarterback the NFL has been waiting for. I'll eat crow on that 100% because within that argument that I made at the time for Bleacher Report, I added the caveat that he needed to develop in the nuances of the game. You know, you go back to his redshirt sophomore campaign. It was obvious how physically talented and how gifted a young man he is. But playing that position is so far beyond simply a physical skill set that we can't talk ourselves into making him an elite prospect when he never developed into the, in those within those nuances. How he does pre, post-snap reads, where his ball placement is consistently, how he his pocket presence and how he handles pressure. All these are major question marks and all of them are major portions of playing the quarterback position. And we hear the cliche all the time, quarterbacks play from the shoulders up. Well, He's lacking there. And I'm not trying to say he's not intelligent. I'm just simply saying he's not developed uh, uh, far enough to where you can expect him to step in the NFL and be able to handle 
those expectations from that position. We often hear the comparison to Carson Wentz, and I've had the pleasure of speaking to Tim Polisek, who was the offensive coordinator uh, at North Dakota State when Wentz won his last two national championships. I've also spoken with Brett Vegan, who was Carson Palmer's coach the first three seasons in North Dakota State, and then Josh Allen's offensive coordinator last two years. And he said there, there's comparisons. But he also said, and something that tipped my hand to a degree listening to him, was if you if you ask Josh, he'll even tell you he's not a finished product. And that said something to me. That while you expect a position coach or you know coach from that university to be a cheerleader for his guy, you also want to see how he feels about that person. I get to give it a little bit of a better view. And it was outright stated that it's going to take time. It's going to be someone that you need to place in the right situation to fully realize his potential. And Doug, I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or anything along these lines. Do you honestly think playing for Hugh Jackson in no. Cleveland is the best situation for Josh Allen to develop his full potential? I don't think it's the best situation for anyone to develop their full potential. <laughs> But when you're further behind on the learning curve, yeah. comparative, comparative to the other prospects, that's a concern. I mean, let's not nitpick. Let's just look simply at their skill sets. I mean, let's take all the outside factors out of it and simply look at what they did as prospects. If you're looking for the best natural thrower, we know that's Josh Rosen. No ifs, ands, or buts. If you want the most productive and efficient quarterback and the most accurate overall, that's Baker Mayfield. If you're comparing Sam Darnold to Josh Allen, Darnold is a superior anticipatory thrower and consistently makes more high-level throws. Yeah. So I don't understand where you where he wins that tells you he should be the number one overall pick other than six foot five, two hundred thirty-seven pounds with a howitzer attached to his shoulder. That's it. And to me. When you look at the quarterbacks, I agree. Whether it be Mayfield, Rosen, or Darnold, all three of those have franchise potential. All three of them, in my opinion, are top ten talents. And you can't go wrong. You just need to place them in a position to succeed based on where they went. Allen is a far is far further behind each of those other prospects and where he is in his maturation as a football player and a quarterback. Okay, well, I was trying to be open-minded <laughs> for like three minutes. Um, so, but he is going to go. Let's go, my friend. He, he is going to go high, though, right? So, if the Browns don't take him, the Bills are going to move up and take him, or Arizona's going to move up and take him, or Denver's going to take him. Is it is it just that it, the 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 scenario for the Browns would be magnified? That someone he's going to I think he's probably going to go in the top ten. So is anyone taking Josh Allen in the top 10 making a mistake in your mind? Or is it that it would be magnified if the Browns take him at number one because, A, it's number one. It's not just in the top 10. But also all the guys they would be passing on to take Josh Allen. That if you're Arizona and you move up and you take Josh Allen – but Rosen and Mayfield and Darnold are off the board, then you know what? You take a risk on a 6'5 guy, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, shoot another bullet next year. Does that make sense? Or do you just think anybody trying to take Josh Allen in the top 10 is making a mistake? I want to go as far as making a mistake. I do believe Allen has first-round potential. And I'm not trying to downplay 
who he is as a person or as a player. Because there, obviously at one point in my career, I assumed that he was going to be the number one overall pick or at least high, drafted high in the process. So that potential is still exists. And we can discuss it ad nauseum because of who we can compare him to and, 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 and where his skill set lies overall. What I do am concerned about is situation. Um, Cleveland, obviously, number one overall, is not a very good fit. I, I, we have to see what happens at number two. But if you're talking specifics with the team, number five, if you're at Denver and you are fully invested in Josh Allen, after, by the way, coaching him at the Senior Bowl, that makes perfect sense. And you already have Case Keenum signed for two years, and you can roll with the veteran and then eventually move on to Josh Allen. So to me, that type of scenario would be perfectly fine. But if you're Cleveland number one, or let's say Buffalo, and you're in a situation where Buffalo trades the 12th, 22nd, and maybe next year's first-round pick, that's an awful hefty price yep. to move up for a guy that you don't that may be the least the least likely to develop into a star. And so that's my concern. It's investment and situation far more than it is just his natural ability. Because if he landed, for example, if he actually went where I where I, I rank him as you know mid to late first round talent to a New England or a New Orleans, you know, in that type of situation, he could be spectacular long term. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking yep. at teams that have had years of failures, and now they're in a position to try to develop uh, a basically a raw piece of clay. <laughs> How are you going to turn it into a masterpiece, or is it just going to fall apart on you in the end? And that's that's the concern, and that that's why it's, or I rail against the narrative that he should be the number one overall pick. But I'm not trying to downplay overall his ability and what he could potentially become. All right, so... A lot. Our Mary Kay Cabot for us has been reporting for weeks that she thinks it's down to Darnold and Allen. There seems to be a consensus forming around that that that's what it's down to. You clearly don't think it should be Allen, but let me ask you this: knowing what you know about the Browns, knowing what you know about John Dorsey and Alonzo Highsmith and Andrew Barry and all the decision makers in the Browns front office. Knowing what you know about how the NFL works, who do you think the Browns are going to take number one? Sam Darnold, and I'm not okay. even hesitating. Okay. Because I feel better. It, it, I feel better. <laughs> well, it, it, it comes down to the things we were just discussing. Where does he fit in the hierarchy of, of the priorities? team's place on the quarterback position. When you look at Sam Darnold, and we've seen some of the some of these tell, telltale signs of the type of person he is as much as the player, and that's vital. That's why uh, when we go throughout this process, specifically with quarterbacks, we need to know who they are as people as much as they are as players. And when, when you're the Cleveland Browns and you have to differentiate between four potential top prospects, it takes time. It, you need to go to the pro days. You need to go to the senior bowl if they're available. You need to have them interview and visits and workouts. And it all it's just figuring out more and more of the puzzle to decide whether they can step in and be someone that in a room full of grown men who need who have families to feed, whether they're going to rally around them or they're just going to put up with them. <laughs> yep. And in Cleveland, we've seen far more of the latter than we've seen of the former. And one of the things that was fascinating to me, a couple actually, was Sam Darnold. And, and obviously this is uh, just um, examples found throughout the draft process. But when 
you find out publicly that he's that he's doing whatever he can within the, within his pro day workout to be number one overall. So he wants to go to Cleveland. I'm not saying that's that's a deciding factor, but it gives you an idea of his mentality. He's unflappable. He's unflappable, and his parents refer to him as flatline. What type of guy do you want on the fourth quarter with a minute to go needing to score a touchdown? Yeah. That's the type of personality you want. The other example I, I would give is how his teammates rally around him. You know, he rescheduled his flight out of Cleveland to go to USC to throw for one of his close friends, Ronald Jones, when he finally did his workout because he had hamstrings. This says a lot, not just about the football player, but the human being. And being able to step in into an NFL locker room and instantly gain respect. And I believe that you see that with Darnold far more than any of these other prospects. I will say, um, Ohio State, as we know, played USC in the Cotton Bowl. I was there all week covering that game. I wrote a lot about Sam Darnold at that time because knowing he might be in the mix for the Browns. And I wrote this at the time that when you ask teammates about a guy, of course they're going to say good things. They're not going to stand up and talk to a reporter they've never met and rip their quarterback right before a bowl game, even if that's what they think. But I thought, of course they have to say good things, but the way they said the good things, I believed that his teammates liked this guy, and I thought that they believed in this guy and that he was their natural leader and that he did give you those things. The year before, Ohio State played Clemson in the, the, the Fiesta Bowl, and all week, you got that vibe from Deshaun Watson. You you get around Deshaun Watson, you fall in love with the guy. Sam Darnold's not to that degree because he's more low-key than Deshaun Watson is. But I thought Sam Darnold had an interesting mix of like low-key laid back, but also some swagger. That I thought that that he, when he was like hanging out with his teammates... You could tell guys gravitated to him, and then with the media, he was very respectful, and and you know wasn't like a Baker Mayfield type necessarily, which turned some people off. I love Baker Mayfield, but I do think you got a vibe from Sam Darnold that I walked away from that from a couple days thinking, yeah, I buy it from that guy. You know what I mean? And I talked to his offensive lineman, I talked to his offensive coordinator for a long time, I talked to the defensive coordinator about him. You got a vibe that they believed in Sam Darnold, and that made me think, yeah, this guy has some aspect of that, which is what you're looking for in a franchise quarterback. So, Brent, this is my last question. If the Browns take Sam Darnold number one, if they make a very smart decision at number four, whether it's Chubb, whether it's Ward, whether it's a smart trade down, whatever, if they make some very smart picks with their second round picks and they get a corner or they get another pass rusher there, or they get a good running back there. If the draft goes well, and when you look at what they've done this offseason, what would you say to Browns fans about how they should feel about the direction of this franchise, assuming they take Darnold and assuming the rest of the draft makes sense? What should Browns fans think? Well, I believe that they are certainly headed in the right direction, that even coming into the 2018 campaign in a perfect storm, granted, they have the potential to surpass Cincinnati and Baltimore, who haven't done nearly as much with their overall roster, and those teams continue to erode to a degree uh, throughout their entire team. So you have that potential. You have a team 
that's getting the right pieces in place. They have youth on their side. You have years of high-level drafting, and that's not, I'm not trying to slight or make any statement there. I simply mean the amount of picks, the amount of players that have come in that can continue to contribute long-term within the roster. You finally have an established quarterback. You're expected to draft the next phase of your franchise. These are all important steps. And as much as we can make fun of the process, as it's often called in NBA circles, and what it took to get to this point, which I understand as a fan was ultimately the most painful thing you went through, went through other than the move of the organization, that it's time to benefit from it. It's time to see a team that could potentially win, again, in a perfect storm, six, maybe seven games you're pushing in 2018, and then you can take that next step in 2019 when you add a couple more pieces. So uh, there should be hope in Cleveland because, quite frankly, and I said, can't be any worse, yes. but it's getting better. It's, it, it is getting better, and you have all the assets. And let's not let's point out that beyond this year, you're still in position to continually improve your roster at a very high level. You know, before the Jarvis Landry extension, Cleveland still had the most salary cap space in the NFL at $70 million. So you, when you start rolling over that money for another year and a year after that, you are so well positioned long term that if you do start winning some games, if you do start becoming that team that becomes that quote-unquote destination uh, team overall, you can do some major damage. But it comes down to making the right choices and putting yourself in a position to succeed, and that's where they fail constantly year after year. So while we while we see Cleveland have multiple first-round picks, we've seen it before, we need to see John Dorsey finally make the right picks, and then Cleveland can build toward the team that so many fans remember back in the 60s, early, late 70s, early 80s, and into the mid-80s. Brent, tell the people where they can find your work. Oh, very simple. I'm active on Twitter, as Doug well knows, at Brent Sobleski. Uh, it's very simple. I'm not very original when it came up with my Twitter name. Always visit Bleacher Report. Uh, you know, uh, my stuff appears there about every day overall. And I do contribute as an insider for the Orange and Brown Report. So please check it out. Um, I know I have a lot of Browns followers. I grew up in the area. I know the team very well. Been around them. Love discussing them because, quite frankly, Sometimes I consider them the days of our lives of NFL football because there's always drama. <laughs> yes, yes, and maybe someday there'll be a little less drama and a little more winning. But uh, this, I think, this is a novel approach. Wouldn't that be interesting? Where we're actually talking about you know not making big moves in the off season because they don't have to because yeah. they're actually winning games. But I, I just think this is such an interesting time because I think you, and I know. You know, the Browns had been here before when they had the Trent Richardson, Brandon Whedon draft, and, you know, when the Justin Gilbert, Johnny Manziel draft. We've been at other times where people thought, okay, this is it. Well, no, 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 now this is it. And I understand that, and it never has been it. But I just think there are other things in place with the salary cap room you mentioned, with the number of draft picks, with some of the young players. Um, John Dorsey, I know not everybody loves him, but he has a track record in the league. He hired a bunch of guys who have track records in this league. I just think it is a little bit different now than where it's been in the past yeah. because they have they have more in place. So um, I, I, let me say one more thing, real quick, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, the only thing that bothers me about the team as it's currently constructed constructed 
is the organizational structure. And that's what's bothered me since Jimmy Haslam's t- taken over. Yeah. Because he takes this, what I refer to as a boardroom ap- approach, where he's at the head of the table and everyone's reporting to him. And that's what we saw the major disconnect between Sasha Brown and Hugh Jackson. Now you have a forced marriage between John Dorsey and Hugh Jackson. Who gains the owner's ear last is usually the one that wins the power struggle. So what I'm fascinated about, at least this season, isn't necessarily how the team grows, because I expect it. What I want to see is how the coaching staff grows and if they can adapt. If they can't, then you're restarting next year with a new staff who's handpicked by a general manager, which may have been a better overall solution this offseason, yet we didn't see it. Yeah. No, I know. Right. Everything's in place other than the owner and the head coach. Everything else is fine. Um, it's just that, like the two most important positions on any NFL franchise are a mess. Um, I just had this vision of the meme with the dog with the fire behind them. Everything's yeah, fine. Everything's I fine. know, I know, and people know. People know where I stand on Hugh, but I mean, you hope, you almost hope that some things can happen in spite of that. You know, like I, I'm going to stop railing against Hugh Jackson at the moment just because he's going to be here, and so he's going to start the season, and I think he's going to get through the whole season. So if he's bad, they'll make a move. Obviously, if he's terrible and they're terrible, they're going to make a change. If they show progress, you know what? Then maybe he's going to stick around and maybe he'll get a chance to be the guy here. But um, in the end, I do think, you know, you look at like the Tennessee Titans this year as a team that made a lot of progress um, and then made a coaching change, right? That Sometimes you win even if your coach isn't very good. And then people make decisions, and you can you can take more steps forward. Um, but you have to get some players in place, and it's that you know what. Before we go, Brent, there's one thing that I just found interesting about this off season. Okay. I feel like the name Miles Garrett does not come up that much, and I think it's just an interesting thing to think about. That again, like they just happen to have the guy who was the overall number one pick in the draft who missed the beginning of the season because of an injury, um, sitting there possibly ready to be as good at his position as anybody in the league. And like, there's so many other things happening that I feel like that's almost getting taken for granted, which I almost feel like is a good sign. You know what I mean? Well, that, I like, yeah, I was going to say, well, the one thing that you take with Miles Garrett, at least of what we heard this offseason, has been negative. You know, we tend to become, and we, I'm speaking royally in regards to the media, become hyperbolic when it comes to certain talent. Yeah. And we consistently hear every year, he's a generational this or that. Well, sure. that, that's an oxymoron if you're saying it every year anyways. But that's how we viewed Miles Garrett last year. Yeah. And to the negative point, what we've heard so far this year, well, maybe, maybe Bradley Chubb is as good or even better. Now, I find that laughable, first and foremost, because we build value at that position based on the ability to rush the passer, and Garrett's far more explosive and flexible off the edge. But I, but we continually see this point that maybe he wasn't quite as good as what we thought he was. And anyone who watched Cleveland last year and even saw Garrett at, you know, far from full strength, saw how much of a difference maker he can be in any situation. So that's why I I think you should, any Browns fan should be excited if that possibility presents itself where you have Chubb on one side and Gary on the other because now you have the two youngest, most dynamic pass rushers in the NFL lining up across from each other. Yeah, and I do. And even, you know, it's just this whole thing with the defense – we didn't really get to see Garrett and Ogba together very much last year. Jamie Collins was hurt 
a lot last season. Like I, I just feel like there's room for this defense to really make a jump just if their best guys stay healthy because we didn't see their best guys together very much at all last season. So, yeah, there's hope. There's reason for hope, which I think makes for uh, an interesting time for Browns fans. Brent, thank you for taking the time, man. I'm glad um, glad we were finally able to make this happen. And um, once this draft is over and we have a whole summer to analyze it some more, hopefully we can have you back on here on Takes by the Lake. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's greatly appreciated. All right, Brent. I'll talk to you later, man. And that's it. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you're listening to our other Cleveland.com podcasts on other feeds. Orange and Brown Talk, the Browns podcast from Mary Kay Cabot and Dan Labe. Cleveland Baseball Talk with the Indians getting going. Joe Noga, Paul Hoynes, make sure you follow that. Of course, as the NBA playoffs are beginning, Wine and Gold Talk from Joe Varden and Chris Fedor. All separate podcast feeds. Make sure you're subscribed to all those different ones from Cleveland.com. We appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to listen to Takes by the Lake. Sorry, it was a little bit of a break there. Again, we'll do a couple more before the draft. Thanks to Brent Sobleski. Thanks to you guys. I'm Doug Maurice, and we'll talk to you.